Thank you, Pastor. Good morning for the next three minutes. And then good afternoon. Good to see you. Can I move this? We good? Do what I need. Okay. Good to be back at Pure Grace. Is this, is this uh, third year? Um, always have a good time here. I appreciate the the environment in this church. There's a the, it's I, it's kind of that meshing of churches together that is beautiful, and it, that kind of flows over into what the attitude I get from you. I love that because that's the way I think the union of believers ought to be. And uh, I always look forward to this. I'm excited to be here. And to minister a couple times, and, and I, I'm so excited to be with Lynn, who has uh, over, I guess, a decade now. We've, we've known one another close to ten years. Um, I respected Lynn the moment I heard him and heard from him, but as I've watched what he does and who he is, that respect has grown more and more because I, I yearn for authenticity. People who are real, and Lynn Hiles is real, and I appreciate that so much. And it's always a treat to get to be in a conference with him because uh, he brings great fresh bread to the table, and then you want to bring fresh bread to the table as well. You know, you, you want to deliver something worth eating because you've just sat through, you know how it can be. So I appreciate that. Wasn't that a good word that you heard this morning? Um, excellent, as always. And uh, Lynn always gives me good things to think about and gets me asking the right questions, which I always appreciate. And that's something that I, I want to do today is to get you to ask the right questions and really go on a journey. I, I kind of want to, I have a, an area that, I, that the Holy Spirit began to speak with me earlier this week that I want to go down with you today. But I want to sort of walk a few steps from where we were a few moments ago in that, since that's really fresh on all of our minds and our hearts. And and I felt like Lynn did a, a masterful job this morning of showing us what we've turned away from and began to show us what we've turned into. And I feel like the Spirit set up the way this was going to go today. Lynn and I didn't talk. I didn't know what he was going to say. He didn't know what I was going to say. That's typical of how the Spirit, where I'd rather do it that way than go, hey, what do you want to do? And then I'll do this. Then that's just... Um, never, that's chaos. That never works. And so watching how the Holy Spirit dovetails, it's a beautiful thing. And so I'm excited to watch how that sets out in our hearts this morning as we go on that journey. But to, I was struck as he was talking about this, this uh, apostolic reformation. It was a great phrase for it that we seem to be going through. And I can tell you that's a real thing. There's this spiritual tide that's starting to roll across the church that is, that is turning hearts back to Jesus as the centerpiece of the faith. You would think Christ would be the centerpiece of Christianity, but I have found Christ is the hardest character to find in the modern church. You know, you, 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 he's hard to find in the song. He's really hard to find in the sermon. And uh, the only thing you can usually find in the altar is you. I mean, uh, they, they, everything is centered around you and, and fixing you. And I, I love to hear about Jesus and how wonderful and how beautiful and how great that he is. So there's a wave, and it's slowly happening to where the message of grace is no longer uh, you, you know, your weird, wild-eyed uncle at the family reunion talking about it. Now it's getting a little more mainstream where at least you're having to deal with it. You know, if you're uh, having to, even if you say it's heresy, you're at least having to deal with that grace. And so uh, that's exciting, but it's slow. 
And, and we're in the middle of it, and it's, it still feels slow. You take the 30,000-foot view and watch what's happened in the world. Um, I, I really think the last several hundred years, especially since the Enlightenment, about 250, 260 years, the world has changed at a more rapid pace than it ever had in the history of the world, and that rapidity gets quicker and quicker and quicker every decade. Why we're ignorant of that is beyond me, I mean, and we really are ignorant of it. Did you know that absolute poverty was cut in half between the years 2000 and 2012? Absolute poverty cut in half. Did you know that in a recent poll, 95% of Americans either didn't believe that or never knew it? Now, why is it that nine and a half out of 10 of us don't know that absolute poverty has been cut in half? Because there's almost this predilection to consume bad news. And so we hear something negative and we run to it because that's evidence to us that confirms our biases and our opinions about the world going to hell in a handbasket. But when you start to hear that it isn't as bad as you thought it was, that people are actually more successful, that it's not what I heard growing up, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, that's Marxism. The reality is the rich get richer and the poor get richer too. And it's happening so quickly, it's running, you, it's, it's running right past us. Now, why from 2,000 years from the cross till now did that happen? As, as, as Brother Dr. Hollis was talking about uh, the church being put, putting the cross on the shield and walking into battle, that happens, that happens in the 4th century when Constantine becomes a Christian. Now, I air quote it because I don't know if he becomes a Christian, but he saw profit in running a Nash, uh, an empirical church. And so his soldiers go into battle with, sword, with crosses on the front of their shields, and the church was never the same again, at least not until Luther. And even then, we struggled because the church could never let go of the tether of the state. And, I, and I, from about 350 A.D. on, we link so closely to the state, I think it took a ho- the Holy Spirit giving us the enlightenment to build, and I know this doesn't, this doesn't go over real well in a lot of churches, but I'm going to say this anyhow. I, I've built a bit of rapport in three years here. I think you can trust me, or at least I hope so. Uh, I, I think what happened, I think with the Enlightenment, what happened is finally God's got someone that would separate church and state. Yeah, it was an overwhelming amen. Finally, God went, yes, the only way that my church, my people can truly come out from among them and be unique is if they are not tethered to the empire. And so only then will they be unique enough to survive a wilderness. Only then will they be unique enough to survive the challenge, whatever that challenge is, because great health comes out of adversity. The reason why you do better against certain diseases than your forefathers have done is because over the years of generations and genetics passed down generation to generation, your immune system got stronger and stronger and better and better until you faced trials with a greater ability than your forefathers did. If that happens in the biological, physiological manner, how does that not also happen to us socially and spiritually to where the more that we face, the better we are? We look back on the early church and we go, man, those guys were titans of the faith. 
Well, perhaps you would be too if you were tethered to a pole and being beaten and shipwrecked and stoned and famine was hitting your way and you were living to survive the attack against your faith and you were holding on to it. And if you let go of it, you, you felt a blasphemer, but you held on to it because it was real. And they come out of that with something that in some ways we lack. And so I, I, I really... I, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about that wave and that change and that transition. Uh, at the same time, I want to see, see what happens now as the Holy Spirit begins to do this work in the body of Christ with grace as our foundation. Where do we go in taking this grace out to another generation and making something happen? And so I really, I, it, we're a room of disciples today. I mean, you... You left something outside to come in here on a Saturday. What I mean is there was a version of you that had a Saturday, football and mowing and barbecuing or whatever, and that version of you doesn't exist now, maybe in your mind, and you're kind of, and on your phone checking scores, but that that version, you already checked. (laughs) That was, break. that was what the break was for. There's a version of you that sort of stayed out there because there's a version of you that come in here. And, and I know as elementary as that seems, that's happening to you in real time every day. You turned left when you could have turned right, and the fact that you turned left created an entire new world. Like one massive choose-your-own-adventure story where you know, if, you, if, you follow the, if you eat the red pill, turn to page 42. If you eat the blue pill, turn to page 115. And the whole story, your whole life's that. And, and it's, it's laying down what you could have been to be what you are. And so you're a room of disciples today. You made a decision and a choice at some point to walk into this room, but that was part and parcel of a bunch of other choices, part of which started way back whenever you said yes to Jesus. And so at that moment, you took another turn and your life began to take the developments and the twists and the turns that it has now. And even regardless of the turn, a bunch of life finds you along the way, regardless of which way you turn. And so maybe bankruptcy finds you whether you turn to Jesus or not. And maybe cancer finds you whether you accept Christ or not. And maybe depression hits whether you accept Christ or not. And that's a toughie to push off on to get a lot of Christians to even believe, much less to amen, because what it says is that bad things happen to good people that make good decisions. Now, we all know that at a deep level, that bad things happen to people who didn't do anything to make bad things happen, but they happen. And it breaks a lot of people, even Christians. It breaks them because they came into this under the persuasion that by accepting the turn left or right to accept Jesus, they were avoiding a lot of other things in their lives, and therefore anything bad could not possibly come their way because they made the most appropriate decision to accept Jesus. And I think we've misunderstood faith. Faith is not the call to accept Christ so that there are less things that go wrong in our life. Faith is the call to accept Christ so that when all of the things go wrong in our life, someone walks alongside of us. And I think that's been lost a little bit. And grace doesn't save you from catastrophe happening. The message of the cross and the finished work and favor do not save you from problems happening. But they equip you in a way that you would never been equipped had you turned the other way. 
And we need to focus a little bit more, I think, in the message of grace on helping people understand what they're walking into and how they might be able to avoid some of this in life rather than just saying, hey, the favor of God's going to keep you from all that. That's fun to shout to, and then comes Monday, right? When you get out there on Monday and go, whoa, what happened to conference? I was supposed to be walking in favor. You are walking in favor, and now understanding what that looks like might make a little bit of a difference in our walk. And so I really think that, and I want to kind of start here and then end here, all right? I like to sort of bring it full circle. The Bible talks about the New Testament has a very peculiar oxymoronic statement. Only Paul uses it in Romans 12 when he says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. It's an oxymoron because sacrifice by definition is dead. You can not possibly be a living sacrifice. You could be living to be a sacrifice someday. Maybe that lamb lives to be sacrificed, but how could you possibly be a living sacrifice? That's because, and we'll build up to this today, but I think what the Apostle Paul is presenting is this idea that discipleship is leaving what you could have been behind so that you go be what he would have you to be, and he walks that out with you, and that is a constant living sacrifice. That is you alive. By the way, when someone talks to you about living sacrifices, don't emphasize sacrifice nearly as much as you emphasize living. That's our problem. We hear things about living sacrifice and while we think about something dies. No, the first word is living. So if you're not living, that's not the sacrifice the Holy Spirit wants. So be living and living in a way in which you understand that you've left something behind so that you can embrace something out in front of you. You see, I think essentially the call to faith is a call to adventure. And I want to work from that premise today all the way up to being a living sacrifice that the call of faith is essentially the call to adventure, that the Holy Spirit, I call him the Holy Spirit, He who walks alongside of us, a paraclete, a comforter, that essentially what he's doing by calling out to us is challenging us to take a step out into something we don't see so that we can become something we don't see but that we are destined to be. That call to adventure. I want to take you to start with in in Luke chapter 9 today to a story that Jesus relates. And I want to use the Luke 9 passage to sort of bring some thoughts Uh, try to bring some text into some thoughts and then we'll work our way towards Paul's living sacrifice. In Luke chapter 9, look at verse 57. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Don't forget that, and I love that first phrase, it happened as they journeyed on the road. They didn't have to tell you that. I was dwelling on that this week and thought, why does Luke throw that in? It doesn't tell you where he's going, where he's coming from. So why throw in it happens as you journey on the road? Because the call to adventure in faith always happens as you journey on the road. This is something that happens as you walk this out, as you journey down the road, the call to faith happens. It happens over and over. Don't think when I say the call to faith, all I mean is the day you got saved. See, you're already disciples. We're not working backwards. We're working forwards. You've already accepted the call to faith in Christ, but you're going to be you're going to have a call to adventure placed out in front of you many times now that you've been placed your faith in Christ. And they happen as you walk down the road. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, this is particularly a bizarre set of circumstances, in my opinion, in which Jesus confronts three different people in one trip. I'm not sure that's what happens in that they all happen at the same time. I think Luke might be showing us a conglomerate of three different encounters Jesus has with people as he journeys down roads in his ministry. And part of his journeying down roads is to make disciples, to offer people the opportunity to follow him, like he does on Peter's boat. Come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And so He's offering people this great call to faith, this great call to adventure. But in every situation, there's a problem. There's a reason why people won't follow. I used to take this, these verses as a little bit harsh. I mean, Jesus, my dad died. Can I go to his funeral? Jesus goes, nope, let dead people bury dead people. I went, man, he's pretty rough. I mean, that's a, that's a tough call to go follow that. Or man, it puts his hand to the plow and looks back's not fit. So as I wrestle over these stories, I began to see that I think essentially what the Bible is doing is showing us that from the beginning of the text, what the Bible's doing with faith is always calling man to a great adventure. I want to do this today because I think what's happening is that we are lacking true meaning in our lives. And by lacking true meaning, we're lacking a reason to put one foot in front of the other. And I'm not talking unbelievers today. I'm talking to believers See, what's happened in the message of the kingdom and the message of grace is what Dr. Hiles talked about this morning, and I agree wholeheartedly. It's not just about going to heaven. And the fact that it's not just about going to heaven has been enough to pull the wool out from under some believers because the only reason they were saved in the first place was to not go to hell. Yeah. And because now they, they're, they're not so worried about not going to hell and they're realizing that maybe heaven's supposed to be happening around them, they're losing that, la, that ring, that gra, brass ring of heaven they can shoot for even though they know that's still there. But what's motivating me along the journey? And so as we're losing that motivation along the journey, what's the meaning that keeps propelling me forward? Well, some people go, well, my meaning's in my children and that's okay. And then what happens when they graduate and move away? My meaning's in my job. What happens when you hit retirement? Well, we know what happens in those situations. Kids move away and mom and dad get divorced because they don't know who one another are anymore. They're looking across the room going, who are you? I thought you were supposed to be taking kids to ball games. That's the only reason you and I live together. No more ball games to go to. How are we going to get along? Meaning's going to have to be deeper than driving someone to soccer practice. Or, boy, if I could just finish my career, I could kick back somewhere and drink a cocktail with my toes in the sand. That's fun for three days. And then on the fourth day, toes are burnt. You're miserable. You come home to an empty house and no job. And you go, now what do I do with my life? How quickly meaning runs out and we need something else to propel forward. And if it's just going to heaven, if you're not careful, you'll try to die faster. Yeah, and of all I got to look for, to go to heaven, I'll get there as fast as I can, right? And so there has to be something more to propel. Well, the Bible is your answer because inside of it, it tells you story after story after story of God calling people to adventure. Now, the first thing I want you to do before I give you any examples is I want you to eradicate the thought that you have that came to you because of Western literature. And it's the idea that the word adventure means fun, 
Okay, I want you to get rid of that. All right? Adventure has nothing to do with fun. Sometimes on an adventure, you have fun. Most of the time on an adventure, you have no fun. <laughs> there are fun scenes in your adventure, but it's not your adventure. So I'm not talking about a life of fun. Faith is not a call to fun. Fun's like happiness. It goes away. We've done our, our children a disservice, by the way. We go, I just want to raise my kids so that they are happy. No. You want to raise their, your kids so that they have purpose on the planet. Amen. If your kids have purpose on the planet and meaning, happiness might come their way, and if it does, two thumbs up. But if it doesn't, they'll still have a reason to get out of bed in the morning. And when all you do is work to give people happiness, you haven't given them purpose. And without purpose and without meaning, what in the world are we doing? We're the children of God, and our meaning is way bigger than being happy, although happiness happens from time to time. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Happiness is something that happens as we walk that joy out from time to time. But tell someone they're supposed to be happy as a sign of favor. Tell them that at their kid's funeral. And they didn't do anything, but life found them. Happiness is not the end game. If you get it, praise God for it. But there's something more to live for. So eradicate fun from the word adventure. Know that it's there, but it's not its meaning. And, and let's watch how in the Bible, faith is essentially a call to another adventure. Consider Noah, who God comes to and says, I want you to build a boat. You've never seen rain like is going to happen you've never needed a boat but I want you to build one I want you to build it three stories tall and I want you to put two of every kind of unclean animal on it and seven of every kind of clean animal on it and I want you to make enough rooms for your wife and your sons and your daughters-in-law and I want you to put one door and I want you to overlay it with pitch and I want you to do all of this because the world is going to flood and I'm making you responsible for the animals and I'm making you responsible for your kids and I'm making you responsible for your house if you don't do it, animals die. If you don't do it, your house dies. If you don't do it, your kids die. Do you want to do it? That's Genesis. That's the Noah story. And Noah accepts the call to adventure, and there's nothing fun about it. It's day after day of building boats and being rejected in the public square, being mocked and made fun of, but with a greater meaning and purpose. Why do you keep hammering every day? Because you believe you've been called out into something bigger than yourself. And you keep moving forward because you know there's a flood coming and you're preparing for it. One of the things we miss in the Noah, we miss a lot in the Noah story. Because we sit around in the church, and I don't mean to get sidetracked on every one of my examples today, but a couple of them we've messed up so badly. We we need to chase a rabbit or two. The Noah story, we have messed up for so long because we've missed the point of the story. We sit around and fight over whether or not the flood was global and can we find the boat. Yeah. <laughs> we missed the point. The point is not whether the flood was global. The point is not even whether it happened. And I know that always turns heads. The point is God equips Men to deal with floods. Yeah. <laughs> Why is that? Why do we need that point? Because floods happen and people die and chaos ensues. It's actually the natural order of things. People say all the time, 
why is it if we live in the kingdom are there so many people hurting and so many people in pain? You shouldn't be asking why there are so many people hurting and so many people in pain and so many people depressed and so many people discouraged. You should be asking why we're all not. The miracle is not that a few of us are not. The miracle is that we're not all hurting and in pain and discouraged. That's the beauty of the kingdom spreading like yeast in a loaf of bread, making this happen slowly over the course of time. And so we look at the story of Noah. Another thing that's overlooked a lot of times too is how responsible God makes you on the great adventure of life. When God calls you into an adventure, there is so much responsibility that comes with walking this out. Responsibility is the curse word of the Grace Church. It's manifested in a four-letter word, work. So anytime you go into a grace community and you say there's a work to be done, we go, I don't want to hear works. I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. They go, no, whoa, 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 time out, slow down. I didn't talk about works to be righteous. The work's been done for your righteousness. You can't work your way into any more righteousness. Why would you try? You can't be more righteous than Jesus and you're righteous based upon his finished work. But you have some unfinished work. And the unfinished work is not to clean you up and make you right and give you favor, but you, have, you do have a place in this world and something to do. And a flood's coming, and you're supposed to be doing something about it. That's a great call to adventure. So another thing we miss is that, why doesn't, you know, this hit me recently. Why doesn't God just create more animals? Right? How hard do you think it was for God to create animals? Seems like a no-brainer. It's pretty simple. He put more effort into creating you. I mean, at least with you, he fashioned you out of dirt and then breathed in your nostrils. With animals, he just spoke to the dirt, boom. Spoke to the sky, birds. Spoke to the water, fish. All he's doing is talking. He's that powerful. Why does he go through all 100 years it takes Noah to spare some animals? Why doesn't God just make more? Because once God has done his creative work, brace yourself, he left you in charge. If they're going to survive, you're going to save them. If the world's going to get better, you're going to do it. If things are going to turn, you're going to grab the wheel. You can go, oh, I let Jesus take the wheel. When that comes to your righteousness, praise God, get your hands off the wheel. When it comes to taking care of the planet and the flood's coming over the hill, you better be building a boat and understanding who you are in this world and what's been given to you. Because faith is ultimately a call to a great adventure. And it doesn't just end with Noah, but the Bible unfolds it over and over. Abraham's 75, living in his dad's basement. <laughs> 75 and never left home. Ur of the Chaldees, God comes to him at 75 years old and says, don't you think it's time to go get an apartment? <laughs> You've had enough fortnight. It's time to move out of your dad's house and into a land that I will show you. 
Essentially, the Abrahamic story is a call to adventure. It is God saying to Abraham, there's more to the world than your dad's living room. There's more to the world than just being in his house. There's a whole place out there, and I want you to have a slice of it. But to do it, you're going to have to leave behind what makes you feel comfy. You're going to have to leave behind what you know. You're going to have to step out and do what's hard to do, and you're going to have to follow me, and you're going to have to trust me, and it's going to get bad, and we're going to go into some places, and you're not going to know what to do, and we're going to have some people wrong you and things are going to get rough and you're going to wonder if you heard my voice but if you'll heed the call I'll give you everything your eyes can see and Abraham moves forward and four chapters later the Bible says Abraham believed God and God counted it to him for righteousness it took four chapters to get to that point but he believed God and God counted it for righteousness because essentially what God was calling Abram to do was a great adventure Moses is walking the backside of the desert in his Egyptian clothing. And he sees a bush burning that is not consumed. And he goes to see what it takes to burn a bush with no ashes. And as he kneels down next to it, he hears the voice of God. And God says, slip your shoes from off your feet. The ground you stand on is holy. Watch what I'll do in your generation. And I'll lift you up. And I'll make you a redeemer for my people. It's a call to adventure. And to do so, you're going to have to leave behind the fine linen of Egypt. And you're going to have to lay aside the pleasures of sin for a season. And you're going to have to forget about the heritage of what you had. And you're going to have to go be something you don't understand to help a people that many times won't care for your help. But the great adventure Moses has is, if you do this, I'll deliver an entire nation. That's an adventure. It's Gideon pressing wheat by the wine press. Nobody presses wheat in a wine press. You press grapes in a wine press. Gideon is the quintessential Old Testament coward. Gideon hides even when no one's chasing him. You're pressing wheat in a wine press. You're pressing it somewhere. What if they come to find you pressing wine? They'll find you pressing wheat. Doesn't make a lot of sense, but he's hiding out and there is no general in Israel to lead and deliver God's people. And an angel shows up and says, Gideon, I'll make you a mighty man. And Gideon looks around and goes, me? How could it possibly be me? And God says, if you'll accept the challenge, I'll deliver the people from subjugation. It's a great adventure. It's going to cost you your cowardice. You say, oh, we'd love to get rid of our cowardice. Would we? (laughs) Getting rid of our cowardice means meeting our fear. Meeting our fear is the reason we have fear in the first place. And it's the reason why it's easier to not meet our fear. Just to accept the lot that we have in life. Jonah, get up from Joppa and go to Nineveh. And when you get there, deliver a message. It's a call to adventure. A great revival can happen. Gentiles can get saved. No animal sacrifice. I'll forgive them in a new covenant way, in an old covenant world. You get to be the original apostolic reformer. All you have to do is go, but instead, you can buy a ticket and go to Spain and run from God. There's a lot you have to give up to go to Nineveh, including your hatred for people of other races. 
and other ideologies because you really wish Nineveh would die. That's Jonah's problem. When he arrives, he says, I know that if I preach, you'll forgive them, and I don't want you to forgive them. And Jonah's a lot like a lot of us that goes, you know what? If too many people get this grace, they'll be forgiven, and I really think they need to get what's coming to them. And that's a tough challenge. It's all essentially a call to adventure. It culminates in the New Testament when Jesus walks onto the boat with Peter and says to Peter, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. It's going to cost you. Your fishing days are over with. The boat you saved for your entire professional career, you're not going to use it any longer. You're going to be a man out of his element. What worked for you out here bossing people around on fishing boats won't work for you in there. You're going to find that out the hard way. But if you'll come follow me, man, what could occur? And then the New Testament gives you the ultimate expression of it in metaphoric language. I think this story really happens. Jesus walks on the water, but it really happening doesn't mean near as much to you as it metaphorically happening. What do I mean by that? It really happened. Have you walked on the water? So how much has Jesus walked on the water helped your life? But the fact that Jesus invites Peter out of the boat, now that's your whole world. Because when he invites Peter out of the boat, it's God saying to you, there's something in the unknown. There's solid ground where there appears to be no solid ground. I can do things you can't imagine can be done that are unimaginable and inexplicable. But to do it, you got to swing your leg out of the boat and come follow me. The Bible's call to faith is essentially a call to adventure. Now, here's what we've done with that in Christianity, and I think this is unfortunate, and I think this is to our disadvantage. In Christianity, we presented the call of faith a lot like this. Come to Jesus, or you'll go to hell. Now, That may not have been exactly the way you heard it. And if you're in a grace church and you were here from the day you met Jesus, you probably didn't hear it that way. Because we didn't learn how to preach that way from the Apostle Paul. Let me repeat that. I'll say it slowly. You didn't learn how to tell people, come to Jesus or you go to hell, by reading the Apostle Paul's letters. He never says it. For Paul, it's not about where you'll go, it's about what will come to you. So rather than saying to people, let me pause there for a moment. Let me underpin this with one more thing. So I give you the biblical stories. But did you know this transcends the Bible? This is actually, if I could say it this way, it's bigger than the Bible. You yearn for adventure stories. You love them. It's why Hollywood is a multi-billion and hundreds of billions and maybe trillion dollar industry. Because the stories that make the most sense are people that give something up and go kill a dragon. And along the way, they meet a lot of people. And when they're done killing the dragon, they bring what they have found back to their community and make it better. It's in almost every story we have in written literature. For the last 4,000 years, Odysseus crosses the ocean and fights all kinds of mythical beasts only to return home and have yet another journey before he finally gets to come home and be the hero on his home island. It's so deeply embedded in us, we don't know any other way to tell them. Bilbo Baggins leaves the Shire at the advice of a kindly old gray-haired gentleman 
who walks alongside of him in the shadows along the way. Along the way, he's given amulets and rings and stuff to help. And when he gets to the mountain, he has to kill a dragon and then bring back what he finds to the Shire to change the world he lives in. We love those stories. You go, what's that have to do with me? Harry Potter has a snake in a basement in a castle, and he's the only guy on earth that knows how to kill that dragon. Oh, you can't use Harry Potter in a sermon. Why? You've already watched the movie. <laughs> you already read the book. Why does that resonate with us? Because it speaks something. Pinocchio has a cricket that takes him into the belly of a whale to save his father, the image of himself. Simba has a shaman monkey that takes him down into the jungle and says, look into the water. And when he looks, he beholds the face of his father and realizes who he is. You know why those stories mean so much to us? Because they're exactly what the Bible is preaching to you. That God has called you on a great adventure and that somewhere along the way, if you'll follow him, you'll transform. You'll become what you were destined to be. That if you allow the kindly old gray-haired man, the cricket, the shamba monkey, we like to call him the Holy Ghost in Christianity. He who walks alongside of us and says, there's no dragon too big for you. There's no adventure too great for you. There's no problem over your head. Let's go stare into the image of our Father so that we become the king we were destined to be. Every challenge God has given you in faith has that at its core. And if you catch that, you'll face any hell that comes your way. So maybe in Christianity, rather than saying, have faith, if you don't have faith in Jesus, you'll go to hell, we should be saying, accept by faith Jesus. And allow the comforter of the Holy Spirit to walk inside of you so that you can stare into the image of your father and become more like him. Or hell will come to you. Because the Bible does not dismiss the notion of people going through hell. It's just that the Bible has it different than we do. In Christian circles, hell is a place you go to after you die. In biblical circles, hell is a place that comes to you the day you decide to start living. Every one of your great adventure stories in the Bible, hell finds your hero. Sometimes he's a giant named Goliath. Sometimes he's a den full of lions. Sometimes he's a fire pit. Sometimes he's a flood on the earth. Sometimes he's an enemy army. But he always finds you. He was going to find you anyway. That was the point of the story. Because when you decline and you're Noah, the world floods, the animals die, and your kids are gone. When you decline and you're Abraham, you don't inherit a promised land. You don't receive the fullness of an inheritance. When you decline and you're Moses, people stay in Egypt. You see the trend? When you decline and you're Gideon, no one delivers you from the Midianites. When you decline and you're Jonah, there's a whale waiting somewhere. What's happening in our journey, in our relationship with the Father, is that we are beginning to understand that the moment that we accepted by faith who Jesus is and what Jesus is, and the journey continues in our lives, we begin the process of transforming into who he would have us to be and to decline that, to go back to any other form 
of faith and journey is to be the opposite of what our destiny told us we could be. Look at our text again in Luke 9. See if now the stories might sound a little bit like this. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. It happened as they journeyed on the road. Someone said to him, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus says, are you sure? Even a fox has a place to sleep. Even a bird has a nest. But if you follow me, you're giving up the promise of security. You might not know where you sleep tonight or where you're going to wake up tomorrow. If you follow me, there are going to be some things about your life that are different than anybody else's life because you might have to trust me for your provision. You may not know exactly where everything is coming from. You won't have the luxury of being able to say where you'll be in six months or a year. Sometimes, as you journey down the road, the call to adventure, the call to faith, requires that you give up the security and the underpinning of knowing exactly what the future holds. Sometimes. What else might it look like? Then another one said, follow me. And he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Because the call to faith requires that you leave behind every other thing in the world that keeps you locked into where you used to be. The reason Jesus brings up the dead burying their dead is because to decline the call to adventure is to accept death to your, the, the possibility of what you could be, who you could be. A few years ago, I saw the invisible man. I know that sounds fanatical, that that's what Hebrews calls it. Whenever Moses sees the invisible man and Abraham, the invisible man, calling them out of where they were, the Holy Spirit called us out into the great adventure. We moved across the country and... I watched how God expanded the doors for us to go out and begin to minister, something that I had to leave behind where I was to be able to fully walk into who I could be. A year ago, I heard the invisible man call again, swing your leg out of the boat and go because there's a new season for me to enter you into. Every time has required that we leave behind a piece of us and leave behind a possibility of who we could have been so that we can embrace who we are and so that we can step into this place that God would have for us and leave behind that part of us that needs to stay behind and go into where he has us to go. In some ways today, in some ways, this is the most pointed thing I've ever preached to somebody because the odds are more than good. The odds are spectacular that the Holy Spirit put this on my heart because there's either someone sitting in this room or will watch this video or listen down the road who has been waiting for the very confirmation of the voice of God they've been asking for. The call to do something uncomfortable. The call to leave behind the part of you that needs to stay left behind, that needs to die. The call to swing your leg out of the boat and go. And the knowledge that if you don't, it's not about you go to hell when you die. It's about the hell that incurs by not being all you could be. And to me, that's the next ver two verses. Another said, Lord, I'll follow you, but let me first go bid them farewell who are at my house. And Jesus said, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. In my early days of ministry, I went into the ministry when I was 15 years old. I accepted what I believed was the call to ministry at 15. I don't know if God calls 15-year-olds to ministry. But I believed he had called me. I, I will say this. And I can say this because I lived this, Okay. I believe he calls 15-year-olds to ministry. I believe he also calls them to go prepare for ministry. And I didn't hear the second one. <laughs> so he either didn't say it, or maybe the preparation was me at 15 and 16 and 17 and 18 and 19 and 20 and all of those other years doing whatever God knows I was doing in the pulpit because 
the tapes are burned. <laughs> and and I, that was my preparation. And I went into it, and there were times when I felt overwhelmed and I should quit. And I'll be honest with you, I only stayed in ministry sometimes out of fear. Okay? There were times I did not stay in ministry because I still felt a passionate call. There were times I stayed in ministry because Jesus said in Luke 9, if a man puts his hand to the plow and looks back, he's not fit for the kingdom. And I took that to mean if a man starts and stops, he'll go to hell. What I didn't realize was the Bible is full of starts and stops. It's the story of man. In fact, the day you accepted Jesus was a big stop. You stopped what you were so you could become who you are. And along the way, I've learned that some stops and starts are good because some stops are stop standing in the boat and start walking on water. So how can those two things exist together? A man that puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom. Because in the context of the man putting his hand to the plow and looking back, Jesus is talking about discipleship. Remember, he's walking down a road and people want to come and be a part of him. And he's inviting people to come be a part. And he says, there's no way that you can come and be a part of this great adventure if you put your hands to the plow and look back. Because whenever God calls you out of Sodom, don't refuse. Because what happens to Lot's wife when she refuses? She turns to a pillar of salt. It's not about her going to hell. It's about hell coming to her. There's nothing left when you refuse the call to faith except you. And this is what's wrong with legalism. Because when you refuse the call to faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, all you're left with is legalism. And legalism is you. And it's the tools of death. And according to the book of Revelation, what follows death? Hell comes following after it. It's not just that you die and go follow into hell. It's that whenever death meets you, hell comes following after it. And so the refusal of the call is not about missing heaven. The refusal of the call is about inviting a chaos into your life that you lose the peace of the Holy Spirit and you lose the identity of who you are. And so it's not just about look back, wonder if you should have done this, but it's not heeding that great call. To adventure. Listen, you need to determine the value that you have in the eyes of the Father. If you don't determine the value that you have in the eyes of the Father, you'll never accept the call of this faith because the call of faith is not just getting saved. The call of faith is anything that the Father begins to speak into your life that is going to require you to let go of yourself and trust Him for the next step. That's the call to great adventure. Don't think that it's fun. Realize that it's him taking you down into whatever valley. It's him taking you up whatever mountain. It's him in whatever area you are. And that gives you the meaning to be able to go through it. How am I going to get through this discouragement? How am I going to get through this physical pain? How am I going to get through this betrayal? How am I going to get through this loss? How am I going to get through this bankruptcy? How am I going to get through being wronged? What are my alternatives? Depression, discouragement, addiction, suicide. Run away from God, question the Father, shake my fist at heaven. Say, I would never do that. And yet all around us, we watch people do that all the time. I'm watching a slide. You're watching it as well. High-profile people in Christianity walking away from the faith because it wasn't fun anymore. Let's just be honest. It got tough. Stuff got rough. I wasn't getting as blessed as I thought I ought to be. 
I couldn't answer all the questions. And so when stuff became tough, I'm going to walk away from what I am, not realizing that this is a great journey that we are on, a great call into the adventure of faith. And when you have that, it's how you face any area and any situation that comes up in your spiritual walk because now you have an equipment inside. Start with an identity. The Holy Spirit, I was reading through Exodus the other day. The Holy Spirit showed me Moses at the top of Sinai. You're reading in Exodus as you get into the 30s chapters. You watch Moses go into a wilderness and he stays 40 days and 40 nights and he fasts. The Bible says he doesn't eat meat and he doesn't drink for 40 days and 40 nights. And when he comes out, he comes out with the Ten Commandments. It's the first time in the Bible that it says Ten Commandments is in Exodus. And the Holy Spirit showed me Jesus going into the wilderness. And how, how long does Jesus fast in the wilderness? 40 days and 40 nights. And when he comes out of the wilderness, he doesn't come out with, as Dr. Howell says, rules written on rocks. He doesn't come out with the Ten Commandments. Now, he goes into a wilderness because Moses went into a wilderness. And he fasts 40 days and 40 nights because Moses fasts 40 days and 40 nights. And when Moses comes out of the wilderness, the equipment that he has to beat the enemy in the wilderness are rules and regulations. When Jesus comes out of the wilderness, the equipment that he has to beat the enemy is, I am still a son. Because when he went in, what does the devil say to him? If you be the son of God, do this. And so the equipment that you have, the meaning that you have, the value that you have is in knowing that you're one of God's children. And in knowing that you are one of God's children, you accept the call to faith no matter how crazy it seems, no matter how over the top it seems, no matter how much it seems to be leaving some things behind that are to prop you up. You know that your dad must have your back because he's your dad. And if he's calling you, he will keep you. You have two options in this world as far as I see it far as I weigh, I think the Bible shows it. Book of Galatians says that as long as you were under the law, you were under the taskmaster. The Greek word for taskmaster is pedagogue. A pedagogue was someone who lived in your house and raised you. It was a nanny. Paul uses the Greek word for nanny to say the law was your nanny until Christ came. What does Jesus say? I'm going away, but I'm going to send to you a comforter. Greek word, paraclete. As far as I see it, you're either going to live your life in Christ with a pedagogue or a paraclete. You're either going to live under the nanny of instruction, rules, and religion, or you're going to live under the hand-holding, walk alongside, live inside of the temple of your Holy Spirit, temple of your heart, Holy Spirit. And there's really no other way around. And when you accept the call to faith... The thing that keeps you going every day is the knowledge that no matter what you face, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how rough the water, no matter how big the dragon, no matter how tough the failure, that old gray-haired gentleman is still inside of you. That, that walking alongside giving you the equipment is not asking you to perform up. He's asking you to live out. Man, guys, you are pregnant with possibility in the spirit realm really in Romans 7 when Paul gives that marriage and divorce passage it's not about divorce Romans 7 the first several verses is about Paul saying under Jewish law the woman couldn't divorce the man the only hope she had to get out of a bad relationship is she could hope he died <laughs> that's a real good healthy counseling session isn't it <laughs> Hebrew man and woman comes into Hebrew Old Testament counselor. She says, I'm struggling with him. He goes, well, then we're going to pray that he dies. <laughs> That's really your only hope. 
And Paul says in Romans 7 that you, if, if, if he dies, then she's freed to marry another. And then he throws this interesting little verse that often gets skipped. He says, whenever you were wed to the law, you bore fruit unto the flesh. But now that you are wed unto him who has given you life through resurrection, you bear fruit unto life. What, what's bear fruit mean? It means you are pregnant. The whole connotation was marriage. And when someone's bearing child in marriage, they're pregnant. And so Paul's statement was, as long as your spouse was performance, you were pregnant with the works of the flesh. But the moment you realize that your spouse is resurrected life, you are pregnant with the possibility of great fruit. That's why I preach works to grace people. Not works to be grace people. Works because you're grace people. How can you not work? You're his kid. There's, it's impossible for you to not produce grace. And in that metaphor, you're not just his kid, you're his bride. And you're pregnant with the seed of heaven. I know that sounds bizarre. Paul mixes, his, he takes a metaphor and he, and he runs in pregnancy into the metaphor. But it works because what it says is, I'm so much more than I look like. Now I want to ask you, how are you going to get there? Because that's the big question. I mean, how are we going to get there? Accepting the call to faith is one thing. Walking this out is one thing. Facing our enemies and realizing that all, life's not always supposed to be fair to me and I'm not always supposed to have fun and happiness isn't the end game. But I have meaning because I know the Father stepped out in front of me and I know I have a paraclete, not a pedagogue. I know that I'm a son, not a slave. How do I make this happen? Look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I want to bring this full circle because I talked to you out of the gate about living sacrifice. So Romans 12, verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, the word beseech is urge. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be tr transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For Paul... Once you have become brethren, that's you accepting that great challenge, call to faith. Once you have become brethren, view your entire life as a living sacrifice. Not a sacrifice that needs to die, a sacrifice that needs to live. That's the difference. And what's a sacrifice that needs to live? It is someone who has swung their leg out of the boat and is determined to answer the call of faith. Whatever that call might be. And view your life as if that's its function and its place on the earth. It gives you meaning beyond your job, meaning even... And there's nothing wrong with, with having meaning in things, I don't think, as long as you can maintain the things. What happens when you don't maintain the things? So a higher meaning seems to mean more. And then watch this in verse 2. Don't be conformed to the world. That's, don't pattern yourself after this age. Paul uses the Greek word schema for conformed, where we get the English word schematic. Don't live according to the schematics of this age, but rather be transformed, be metamorphosized. That's the word. It's the same word the gospel is used for transfigure. Be transfigured. Jesus didn't just shine. Jesus shone from the inside out. So let transformation happen by renewing your mind that you may prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. And I want to bring it to a close with this thought. I read Romans 12, 2 forever, that renewing your mind is change your mind. But Paul doesn't say repent your mind and be transformed. Paul says renew your mind. What's the difference in a renewed mind and a repented mind? 
Renew has in it the word new. Something happens in your brain that's never happened before. How can you get something to happen in your brain that's never happened before? I've wrestled and wrestled and wrestled with that until I learned this little fact. This is a biological, physiological fact that I think has spiritual implications. Did you know that when you place yourself in a stressful situation of which you've never been before, your brain produces new proteins to tell you how to deal with that situation? Your brain literally grows what it did not have to adapt to what it has not seen. Do that long enough, in pressure situations, you get better. Why do we practice in sports scenarios that are difficult? Because we're creating a muscle memory on how to deal with the scenario. Now, we see that in sports. I'm in the American South, where it's college football and God in a direct competition. Just <laughs> be honest with you. I moved to Georgia and realized that God first, but football and God sit at the same table. Yeah. College football. Not pro football. Those bunch of heathens. That's what I've learned. Uh, and... We accept that with sports, but in every other area of your life, when you face a challenge that's bigger than you, you can run away from that challenge. That's Gideon pressing wheat by a wine press. Or you can say yes to that challenge because knowing that by facing that challenge, your brain literally begins to add things to itself to learn how to handle that. That is new pieces of your brain. When I finally got that piece of information, Romans 12, 2 came alive for me because what Paul says is don't conform yourself to the way things are in this world, but rather... Go face it. Because when you face it, your mind gets new. You figure things out about yourself you didn't know about yourself. You're stronger than you think you are. The enemy has lied to us from Eden about who we are. Eve walks up to that tree and eats, and, Eve, and what's the snake say to her? Hasn't God... Aren't you going to be, aren't you deficient? Don't you know God doesn't want you to eat this because he knows what you don't know, that if you eat it, you'll be like him? She's already like God. She's way more than she realizes, and she's way more than the enemy's letting on. But he lies about who she is, and she falls for the lie. And the apostle Paul comes along in Corinthians and says, I fear for you, lest as the serpent beguiled Eve, you be removed from the simplicity that is Christ. And just as the serpent has been lying to us about who we are, we've accepted that lie. You're way more than you know. You're facing a challenge. You guys are facing a challenge. Starting to work ain't easy. Be a lot easier to not start the work. Right? But have you heard from God? He called you to an adventure. It's not fun. Sometimes... It's full of dragons and potholes and discouragement. But to say no to the adventure, all of those dragons and holes and potholes were coming. To say no to the adventure means you're a pillar of salt facing a hurricane. The choice is yours. But he never calls you where he doesn't walk in with you. That's the call to adventure. Now, for them, it's starting a work. For you, it 
could be starting a business. For you, it could be answering the call to take a job you don't have or change your lifestyle to do something you've been challenged to do before, that God resurfaced a dream in your heart and said, today's the day. And you go, well, I'm scared. I already got everything figured out. And God goes, well, you can stay in the boat if you want to, but there's a whale coming. And he's bigger than your boat. It's challenges. I stopped blaming stuff on God a long time ago. I don't blame hurricanes on God and tornadoes on God and cancer on God and bad grades on God, bankruptcies on God and things going wrong on God and murder on God. I don't think God has to do any of that to get my attention. I think the world does a fine job of it. And I can conform to their pattern, fight their way, or I can face it knowing who I am in Christ and watch God renew my mind. And what happens when you renew your mind? You are transformed into the image of your daddy. You literally become what he says you are as you allow him to do that work. Father, I want to thank you for this today. I pray I've done justice to what you're speaking in my heart. And Father, I pray you minister this word in a way that I never will be able to because life is coming. And when it comes, may we know that we've essentially accepted that call into your adventure. And having done that, you never leave us or forsake us. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. I took you down some roads today that are uh, a little bit different. And uh, I did that on purpose. Um, I, I, I do this every week, nearly every week somewhere. I have to continue to work out and mine out things as I go. I'm probably the only person I know that's doing this on the road that treats every audience as if they were at my last week's meeting. And I do, I, because, I'm, because there's a lot of people that watch and follow what we do every week, and there's way more of them than there ever is in any building I'm in. And so I build off of the things the Holy Spirit's been saying to me. So if you're watching our stuff and been following along, you saw this coming. This is like the stuff we're walking towards. And then if you haven't and you go, I don't know, that's a little out in left field for me, then that's okay too. It really is. Let the Holy Spirit recall what needs recalled. And then my dad used to say this, eat the chicken and spit out the bones. So wherever the, it was bony, let go of that. Take in what the Holy Spirit has said in your life. Here's, what I, here's my final thought on it. Stuff's coming. You can deny it's coming. You can say, I'm favored. None of it will bother me. Good luck with that because it's coming and you know it is. And when you have meaning and know who you are in Christ, you're going to be better equipped than anybody on the planet. And the planet's waiting on you to show up. Waiting on you to show up. And that's good news.